And good morning. Thank you for being here today. And happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. And I also want to extend a special welcome. I've got two couples here from West Virginia this morning visiting. We've got Gary and Valerie. Gary and Valerie, I'm just going to ask you to throw your hands up for just a big. Oh, there they are. Thank you for being here. And Larry and Cher Reynolds are here visiting. Great to have them. So one of the things that my dad and I used to do, uh, if we were on a long trip together, we'd just flip through radio stations. And inevitably, one of the voices that would come on the air uh, was Paul Harvey. Anybody know Paul Harvey? Was okay, okay, great. I'm really glad to see that. So um, Paul Harvey came up with a definition of a father that I wanted to share with you. He said, a father is a thing that is forced to endure childbirth without an anesthetic. <laughs> a father never feels worthy of the worship in a child's eyes. He's never quite the hero his daughter thinks, never quite the man his son believes him to be. And this worries him sometimes. So he works too hard to try and smooth out the rough places in the road for those of his own who will follow him. Fathers are what give daughters away to other men who aren't nearly good enough so they can have grandchildren who are smarter than anybody's. Fathers make bets with insurance companies about who will live the longest. One day they lose, and the bet's paid off to the part of them they leave behind. Paul Harvey. So happy Father's Day, dads. I hope you have a, a great day. You know, one of the areas that I wish to be a success in is fatherhood. However, I find myself failing more often than I would like, not only in fatherhood, but in other areas of life. And frankly, failure is a part of life. And I came across a list of surprising failures that, that are common. For example, 40% of CEOs don't last 18 months. 81% of new hires don't work out. 99% of new patents never earn a penny. 95% of new products introduced in a given year fail. 88% of New Year's resolutions end in failure. See, that's why I never even bother with New Year's resolutions. I mean, and 100% of all human bodies will fail. Now, these are common failures. Uh, these are ones that perhaps most of us have experienced. But then there's much, much more painful failures in life. And whenever I was at a church in Dallas, Texas, uh, I'll never forget of a haunting failure that impacted the entire church deeply. Uh, there was an elder at that church who also happened to be a, a counselor, and he would uh, preach from the pulpit from time to time. And uh, that, that elder ended up having an affair. And instead of coping with it, instead of dealing with it, he decided to take his own life. And that just sent ripple effects through the entire church family, and it was pretty close-knit. So it's not so much in life whether or not failures are going to come. The question is, how are you and I going to deal with the failures when they do come? And that's the subject this morning. How do we cope with failure? 
This is just, this is poetic. This is poetic right now. So there should be a question popping up. Hey, see, you got to cope. You got to cope with failure. It's going to happen. So I'd like to talk this morning then about coping with failure. And the text I want to start with um, sets the stage for the book of Judges. So we're going to be spending the next several weeks in the book of Judges. But I want to start this morning with uh, chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 1 through 3, and then verse 28. So Judges chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and then verse 28. And please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up... Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Whenever Israel was strong militarily, they forced the Canaanites to do hard labor, but they never totally conquered them. You may be seated. So this morning we're starting this new series uh, from the book of Judges. And as you're going to see, there's this repeated theme in the book of Judges that there was no king in Israel at this time. So in essence, we're saying, welcome to Israel. There's no sheriff in town. There is no clear appointed leader of Israel at this time in its history. So it's going to pose a lot of problems. And we're going to see just how badly things can go when we find them to be rotten at the top. And that makes this a challenging book to go through. I'll be frank. Judges is not an easy book. It's difficult. And today we're going to start out by talking about the background of Judges. And then we'll go in talking about three steps to coping with failure. There is, as you're going to see, ample failure happening, even right here in the beginning of the book of Judges. So first of all, I want to put the book of Judges in its proper place in history. And let me give you just a a three-minute synopsis of the first five books of the Bible. Now, as you know, God created Man fell, and a number of events are sandwiched right there in the very first few chapters of Genesis. Uh, There's a colossal flood. There's a Tower of Babel. And then soon after that, in Genesis chapter 12, we meet a man by the name of Abram. And Abram had a special relationship with God. God came to him and called him out of the, the pagan idolatry he was involved in. And he made an agreement with him. And he did this in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from our country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now the remaining 65 books of the Bible are basically an exposition of what you see right here in these three verses. You see the events of the Bible being carried out 
really based on this Abrahamic covenant. Abram, his name would be changed to Abraham, and this is known as the Abrahamic covenant. The land, the seed, and the blessing are all right here. So the rest of the Bible is going to go on. God's going to make Abraham into a great nation, but how is, is he going to do that? How is he going to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham? Where is this land that he's going to get? And how is he going to get it? How is God going to make these promises come true? That's the question that's raised up as we get through these first three verses. So then what happens? Abraham has children. He has Isaac. He has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Then because of a famine in the land, they end up in Egypt. And while they're in Egypt, there's a Pharaoh that comes up after 400 years and says, I don't know these Israelites. They're multiplying. It threatened this Pharaoh, so he killed the firstborn sons. And then God sent Moses. Moses' job was to get the people out of Egypt, and he did. He gets them out of Egypt, but then they rebel. They start worshiping an idol, so they've got to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And during those 40 years, God teaches these Israelites. It's said that it only took 10 days for God to get the Israelites out of Egypt, but it took 40 years for God to get Egypt out of the Israelites. So they're wandering around, and they receive the law. They receive specific instructions on how it is they are to relate to God, relate to each other, and relate to the whole world, really. They get, they get that in Leviticus. They get a second, a second dose of the law in the book of Deuteronomy. Then we come to the book of Joshua. And in Joshua, they're going to begin the conquest of the land. So God doesn't just hand them the land in the sense that all they've got to do is walk in. There are people there, people that are going to need to be conquered. So we come then to the beginning of the book of Joshua. This comes right before Judges. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, it says, And God said to Joshua, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So Joshua leads the people. They rally around him, and they begin this, this incredible conquest of the land of Canaan. They go in. They're defeating people. And then the, in several chapters later, chapter 24, Joshua comes to the people again so they could recommit themselves to the Lord. And he says this. He speaks to them that the people respond, Far be it from us to abandon the Lord so we can worship other gods. For the Lord our God took us and our fathers out of slavery in the land of Egypt and performed these awesome miracles before our very eyes. He continually protected us as we traveled and when we passed through nations. The Lord drove out from before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. Now, mark this next phrase carefully. So we too will worship the Lord, for he is our God. So you've got this commitment, this recommitment of the people of Israel right there in Joshua. But when we get a little over halfway through the book of Judges, here's, here's what happens. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We have a stark contrast among the people in Israel and how they're now relating to God. 
So then the book of Judges is about the continuing conquest of the land of Canaan, the, the land that was promised to the Israelites there to go in and continue the work of conquest. And it depicts this pattern of people. They abandon the Lord. Then bad things happen. Then they're called on the carpet. Then they repent. Then God raises a judge. And the people may repent for a while. They may turn, but then they go right back to what they were doing. There's a power that oppresses them. The people cry out to God. God raises a deliverer, and the deliverer goes south. So the book of Judges, it's got to be distinguished in terms of the word judge by what you think of as a judge. So when you and I think of a judge, we're usually thinking of, of someone like this, you know, sitting there, gavel in hand, ready to execute the laws of the land. But this is certainly not the kind of judge that we have in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, we have warlords and military kings. So when we come to the book of Judges week after week, don't think so much of this kind of a judge. Rather think of this kind of a judge. More Conan the Barbarian than Justice Rehnquist, okay? This is the kind of judge that we are talking about. And this is actually a really accurate depiction. Notice the bloody sword in hand, because that's the kind of judge that we're going to have as we go through the book of Judges. It's a difficult book, and it's a violent book. It's not a G-rated book, as you're going to see even this morning. But see, there's a reason that God has given us the book of Judges, because we see the results of a people who are being totally infected by the culture in which they have been submersed. And I'll be repeating this time and time again. God told them to eradicate the people around them. They chose not to do so. And they're doing it at their own peril. So in the coming weeks, we're going to be gleaning from the book of Judges the necessity of solid leadership and not allowing the culture around us to completely affect us to the point where we become incapable of enjoying the blessings of God. Because that's what we see happening in the book of Judges. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to find out how to be more Christ-like as we look at the failings of the people that we're going to see as we encounter them in the book of Judges. So let's step into this passage uh, and, and look at this very first step. We're going to talk about coping with failure, these three steps of, of coping with failure. Unfortunately, because of the failings of the people that we're going to be looking at, so, uh, I want to do an overview of the first chapter of Judges. And, and just to let you in, it's not good. It's not good. As a matter of fact, from the very first verse, we see that things are not going to go well. In the first two verses, it says, After Joshua died, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who should lead the invasion against the Canaanites and launch the attack? The Lord said, The men of Judah should take the lead. Be sure of this. I am handing the land over to them. Now, that all sounds well and good. Doesn't sound so bad. Until you compare these verses with how the previous book of Joshua began. Because when Joshua starts out, it's much different. There it says, After Moses, the Lord's servant, died, the Lord said to Joshua, Son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Get ready. Cross the Jordan River. Lead these people into the land which I'm ready to hand over to them. See, there was a clear leader. God called him out. 
He said, you're the man. You're the one that's going to lead them in. But that's not what you get at the beginning of Judges. Because at the beginning of the book of Judges, the people have to ask, uh, who's going to like, you know, do that thing that Joshua was doing? And they don't get a single person. They get a tribe. They get the tribe of Judah that's going to lead them into battle. So this is already very different, and we see it from the get-go. Now, the command to the Jews had been very, very clear. And way back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God said this to them. He said, when the Lord your God brings you to the land that you are going to occupy and forces out many nations before you, and here's all the ites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations more numerous and powerful than you are. And he delivers them over to you and you attack them. And then look at this. He said, this is very clear. He said, you must utterly annihilate them, make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. At this point, Israel was to be the hand of God's judgment on this land. God had been very, very patient with them. He'd given them 400 years to get their act together, and God had a line, and he said, no more. These people are not going to be able to continue to live, and you are going to be my instrument of judgment on these people. So two things were going on. God was going to judge those people who were living in the land of Canaan, the Canaanites, and he was going to give the land to Israel. So the command was clear. But as we move through chapter 1, we find out this, this isn't what's happening, and it looks good at first. God gives, in verse 2, the charge to Judah, take over the land. They join with Simeon, another tribe. Then beginning at verse 4, it says that Judah attacked. Great! And the Lord handed the Canaanites over to them. They defeated a leader named Adonai Bezek, and the, and the text says they cut off his thumbs and big toes. And then we get to verse 7, and Adonai gets it. This is the words of Adonai, this evil king. He said, 70 kings with thumbs and big toes cut off used to lick up food scraps under my table. God has repaid me for what I did to them. So this bad king of the Canaanites realized immediately why he had suffered the way he'd suffered. This is what he'd done to 70 kings, and now he recognized that the God of these Israelites is bringing judgment on him. He knew that. And then we continue on. They come to another city named Kiriath Sefer, and they defeat it. Then we continue through this chapter. We see victory in Zephath and the coastal cities. But then things change when we see verse 19. And in verse 19, it says this The Lord was with the men of Judah. They conquered the hill country, but they could not conquer the people living in the coastal plain. And it says, because they had chariots with iron-rimmed wheels. Well, let me just ask you this the question. Let me just pose this to you. Do you think God is going to be stopped by chariots? No. As a matter of fact, when we get to chapter 4, you're going to see the rebuke for this excuse of not taking over this land. God need not be stopped, even though they've got the iron-rimmed chariots. You know, chariots 2.0. But that's what happened. They're going to be rebuked for that. Then we get to verse 21. It says that the men of Benjamin did not conquer the Jebusites. We see a big turn at verse 19. It goes on to say that the Jebusites even lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this very day. Then we stair-step down through the rest of the chapter. Manasseh did not conquer Bethshan. Ephraim did not conquer the Canaanites living in Gezer. 
the tribes of Zebulun and Asher. They did not conquer. Then it gets worse. And we get to verse 33. It says, The men of Naphtali did not conquer the people living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath. They live among the Canaanites residing in the land. So now not only are they not conquering them, they're just, they're just living side by side with them. Now then we hit rock bottom in verse 34. It says, The Amorites forced the people of Dan to live in the hill country, did not allow them to live in the coastal plain. Let me try to illustrate to you how bad this is. Let's say the Orkin Man. Does everybody know who the Orkin Man is, right? The guy that, the exterminator. Let's say the Orkin Man sends a guy to a house and says, I want you to get rid of all the roaches. And then he goes to check on this guy's progress. And when he gets to the house, he sees that the roaches have forced the guy into one corner of the home and said, that, sorry, you're not going to get rid of us. So the truck is sitting outside, the chemicals are on it, nothing's been done about the cockroaches. And I'll go a step further. This would be like one of you buying a big ranch and the prairie dogs told you, sorry, but you're not going to build here. You go live in that corner and we're going to be in charge here. Now this is where we are with the people of Israel trying to take over the land of Canaan in the book of Judges. It's a fail. It's a big, fat fail. And they've been disobedient, and they've even made excuses, and in some places they've just given up altogether. Now, what does this boil down to? The Israelites are willfully ignoring the command that God had given them. They think they're taking the easy route, um, but see, sin always has a way of complicating things. Even when you think doing that little sin, committing that little sin is going to make life a little bit easier, it is not. Because sin's always going to complicate. And that's what we're going to see happen here. It was true then, it's true now. Sometimes we have innocent failures of ignorance. Maybe we didn't know that's what the speed limit was. But even with those innocent little failures, there's still oftentimes going to be consequences. And with the Israelites, we're going to have consequences. You see, sometimes we think we'll just uh, make that little passive-aggressive comment. Sometimes we think we'll just drop that little bit of gossip, thinking, well, there won't be any consequences of this. Sometimes we don't even know what the consequences are. But when we make mistakes, the best thing we can do is acknowledge the failure. This is what the Israelites have not done. They have not yet even gotten to the place where they are willing to acknowledge that they have made a huge mistake in being so passive and taking over the land. When we mess up, we fess up, right? I think the times in my life when I've made the biggest fool of myself is when I've failed to acknowledge that I've made a huge mistake. My wife can see it. Everybody can see it but me. It's like the emperor who had no clothes, right? He's walking around the city. Nobody would tell the emperor, well, sir, you don't have any clothes on. We have to acknowledge it. This is what the Israelites have not done, at least not yet. And then I want to move on to chapter 2 and look at verses 1 through 3. Let's look at this second step of coping with the failure. It says there, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, And I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. Now the chickens are starting to come home to roost. 
I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So now God has spoken, and we see this reaction of the Lord to the Israelites. So God then is coming to the people, and look what he says. He reminds them, look at everything I have done for you in the past. I've taken care of you. I've keeping up my end of the covenant. I said I would protect you and look out for you as long as you did not turn to other gods instead of me. He reminds them of what God has commanded. Then he accuses them and he asks them, what have you done? Now this echoes exactly what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. God steps into the garden, he looks around, and he says, Adam and Eve, where are you? As though he didn't know, kind of, you know, Lord, there's only two people on the earth. You can keep track of them, right? Yeah. He knows exactly what they've done. But he's bringing about this issue, this sin they've committed. Then he tells them their punishment. They're going to be, these people here, they're going to be thorns in your side, and their gods are going to be a, a snare. So that brings us to this second step of coping with failure, and it's accepting the consequences. Um, for many of us, this has been one of the most painful parts of our lives. When we have some kind of failure, and then we have to accept the consequences that come. And it could be a broken relationship. It could be broken trust. Uh, this is when we got our spanking, so to speak. Who knows what it could have been, but it can be so deeply painful. And it seems like the older we get, oftentimes the more severe the consequences. When we were kids... Our parents scolded us, smacked our hand, gave us a spank as we got older again. Broken relationships, broken trust. And often there's grief involved and we have to accept these consequences. But that's exactly what Israel is going to have to do. They've sinned, their sin has been exposed, and now they have to accept these consequences that God's going to bring to them. So you, you admit failure, you accept consequences and what comes next. And look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1. It says, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed to the Lord. Now, if you notice at the beginning of the passage, the angel had, the angel had come up from Gilgal. Uh, there had been a significant marker placed in Gilgal. Uh, it was a marker that, that Joshua and his people had put there at the Jordan as, as a place where they'd experienced victory, and there they worshiped the Lord. But now, this angel of the Lord has arrived at Bochim. The, the word itself literally means the place of weeping or the weepers. And now they're putting up a new monument of their tears in this place because they don't have worship here. What they have is lament. They've messed up, and they've brought about this weeping. They've gone from a place of victory and subsequent worship to defeat to this place, Bochim, this place of weeping. Now, the good part of this is they made a sacrifice to the Lord, and that's a signal of repentance. 
And that word repent, it comes from this Hebrew word shuv. It means to turn. It means that whatever it was that you were doing, you're turning away from it, and now you're going to do something else instead. They've acknowledged that what they did was wrong. So this sacrifice is a sign of their turning. They're going back to God. This is this third step of dealing with failure. That is to activate repentance. To activate repentance. And there's this wonderful proverb. It's probably my favorite one. Proverbs 26:11. It says, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Now, I think many of you have dogs. Just think about that for a second. It's, it's very gross, but it's very true. Because you see what that dog will often do, it goes out on its happy little day and it comes across some nasty something and it eats it. And what happens? Well, it gets sick, right? It gets a belly. Well, then what does it do? Well, it goes off somewhere and it throws it up. And then for whatever reason, in that dog's limited mind, this again looks appetizing. And it, what does it do? It goes and it eats that very thing that made it sick to begin with. This is what happens when we don't repent. We go back to that very thing, whatever it was, the stupid thing we said, the stupid thing we did that we wish we could take back. We feel bad, we turn away from it, but then so often we come back to that very thing and do that very thing that makes us sick all over again. This is not repentance. Repentance is to turn away. It's, you know what, okay, I screwed up. And maybe it was, maybe it was a big screw up. I mean, maybe it, it cost you dearly. It may have even cost you, it could have cost a marriage, whatever it may have been. You've messed up, but you know what? You don't go back to that very thing that made you sick to begin with, whatever it was. And it, sometimes it just starts out with the wrong thought. So you repent, you turn. Maybe you put blocking software on your computer. Maybe you avoid conversations with someone that's a temptation for you. But you want to get away from whatever that thing was that made you sick to begin with. See, that's repentance. And we see some sign of it here among these Israelites. We see a turning to God with this sacrifice. Unfortunately, it's not going to last. Because you see, these Israelites, they missed out on God's blessing because they compromised the commands that God had given them. They got accustomed to those Canaanites. They got used to them. So they didn't wipe them out like they were commanded to do. They thought they were outthinking God. They thought they had a strategy that was going to work. And instead of living in obedience to God, they settled down with the culture that was around them. And there's something very important for us there. And I want you to see, this is something that was uh, written by a guy named Abraham Kuravilla. Um, he said, faithfulness to God involves behavior distinct from that of unbelievers and abandonment of human strategies for success. See, there's all kinds of things our culture is going to tell you that are going to make you successful. For example, in a marriage. Now the conventional wisdom is, well, what you do is you live with and sleep with that person to find out if you're compatible. That is not the way God said to start a marriage. Marriages tend to fail more often when that happens, as a matter of fact. But there's a conventional wisdom out there. And what we're seeing in the book of Judges is that the wisdom of the culture apart from God does not work. And you will miss out on God's blessing if you subscribe to the culture's understanding. 
to their wisdom, to what they say is and is not healthy sexuality. So if you want to enjoy God's blessing, then you've got to do things God's way. And that means you don't do them the way the unbelievers around you are doing them. It was true among these Canaanites, and it's true today. So coping, coping with failure, cope with failure by acknowledging mistakes, accepting the consequences, and then activating repentance. Be repentant. Turn away. <clears throat> Recently, I came across this article. It appeared in the New York Times. And it talked about a new way of giving final exams to students. I thought it was very interesting. There was this one teacher who decided that instead of giving the final exam to his students at the end of the year, he was going to give it to them on the very first day of class. And they all took the final exam, and guess what? They all failed royally. However, what happened when they took that final exam at the very beginning of the year is it prepared their mind for what they were about to walk into. It set them up for success because then they knew what they knew and they didn't know. And so when the course of that, when that course went on, they knew exactly the kinds of answers they were looking for. They knew they'd failed, failed in the beginning, and now they knew what it was going to take to be successful in the future. And, and, and this was what was written about them. It says, the bombed pretest drives home the information in a way that studying as usual does not. We fail, but we fail forward. And this is a powerful image because, see, failure in our lives can help us in learning, too. Now, no one likes the feeling of failure. That's not what any of us would choose. However, when we do fail, sometimes at that moment we're, we're in the deepest state of grief, it's when we're also the closest to Jesus Christ. And he meets us there in our weakest moments, and that's often where we find the most growth, even closeness to Jesus. So if you are in the middle of a failure, if you've gotten to that place, and you're thinking all is lost, no, it's not. No, it's not. You still have hope. God is still on his throne. And then somehow in his redemptive grace, he's even going to use that failure for the good. That's the promise we have in Romans 8.28. So if you're in a failure, take hope. God's going to use this for the good. Please pray with me. Lord, life down here is not easy. And God, we oftentimes fail. And God, I pray that even if we are in the middle of a failure, even if we are feeling the devastating, the devastating consequences of something we've done, God, I pray that we would take heart. I pray that we would have hope. I pray that we would go day by day knowing that somehow, Lord, in your redemptive grace, we find in the promises of the New Testament that you are going to use this for that which is good. And God, we don't understand how that works, but Lord, we trust you. And God, I pray for those here today who may be in the middle of coping with failure. I pray, God, that you would give them wisdom. I pray that they would not give up. I would pray that they know that in Christ we have hope. Lord, help us as we go out. Help us to make good decisions. Help us to be godly in all that we do. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.